1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, dear people of the internet. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and while we are all probably quite exhausted with going over what it was that happened in the COVID crisis, from the masks and social distancing to the lockdowns and the media hype, not to mention where it came from, how faulty the testing was, who might have developed it, and where all the fingers should be pointing, the reality is that it all culminated in the majority of human beings on this planet coerced into accepting a new, largely untested technology into their bodies. Social pressure was applied, Hollywood influencers were paid to endorse it, the PR machine was dialed up to 11, jobs, travel, and even general participation in society were all threatened, and people's fears were preyed upon until they were lining up for the jabs. We were told you will not get sick if you have these shots, and that quickly proved to be untrue. But any dissenting doctors were removed from the discourse as two shots became three or four or who knows how many. But whatever you think about COVID, viruses, masks, or bioweapons labs, no matter how non-compliant some of us might have been, we all admit that our fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers, friends and even lovers in many cases, opted for a different decision when it comes to these shots. And with media cover stories like a new mysterious sudden adult death syndrome normalizing heart attacks in young people and glossing right over the athletes dying on the field and a large number of musicians canceling tours, it's clear we won't get the truth from them. Which is why today we're talking to the great Dr. Jessica Rose, a Canadian researcher with a bachelor's degree in applied mathematics and a master's degree in immunology. She holds a PhD in computational biology and two postdoctoral degrees, one in molecular biology and one in biochemistry. And she has been applying all her expertise to studying the best available data when it comes to the mRNA shot fallout since day one, and it's an honor to have the best person I know of to answer some of these questions about just how risky and dangerous these shots have truly been. So let's get into it. The data deconstructor, risk assessment expert, and safety signal seeking surfer, Dr. Jessica Rose. Welcome to the higher side. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I try. I try. Yeah, I and like it. It really that. is an honor. Oh, well, thanks. Um, <laughs> I'm just a regular Joe, but I really like that title you gave me. I want to steal that. Hey, it's yours. I don't even remember what you said. <laughs> well, you know, I have interviewed just so many guests with different opinions about nearly every aspect of the whole COVID crisis and what it is or what it wasn't. But my biggest remaining questions are all about what should we expect to happen to our loved ones who did get these shots and how many will be affected. So this is really going to be a deep dive into the available information to help us hone in on that stuff. And you are a perfect guest to do that. Obviously, people should get a sense of that from your credentials, but help those unfamiliar get an even better grasp on your expertise in this area and the attention you've paid to the data since these shots rolled out in December 2020, just two years ago. Well, I have, I have an interesting background. I started my academic career in applied mathematics, and I applied my mathematics to immunology 
So I, I got an immunology degree in medicine. And then I went on to do a computational biology PhD, which kind of blended those two degrees and gave me more experience with big data analysis. And then I also did a couple postdocs in biochemistry and molecular biology. So what I've been doing during this during the past two years or so has involved aspects of each of these these learning experiences that I've had. And it started really early, even before they announced this so-called pandemic in March 2020. Uh, was it 2020? Yeah, geez. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had plans. I had just completed my second postdoc and I had plans to go surfing for a while and to unwind. Um, I go through periods in my life where I work really, really hard for a few years and then I I go use um, the artistic or the physical side of myself as a treat. So that got called off because it basically overlapped with the proclamation of the pandemic. <laughs> so yeah, I needed to find something to do. I decided to teach myself R, which is a statistical programming language that you can use to generate really pretty pictures. And in order to do that, I decided that I'd use a real data set. And because of what I'd been seeing going on around me and because of my background, I noticed that things weren't lining up. And yeah, it was pretty easy to see very, very, very soon into, into 2020 that this was not about a dangerous zoonotic pathogen. This was about something far more insidious you know, population or controlling people, basically. Mm -hmm. So I decided that since the line of thinking of the so-called public health policymakers was to, that there was only one way out of this, which was, you know, everybody getting injected with an experimental product, I thought to myself, well, maybe the perfect database to look at is the adverse event reporting system in the United States, because I anticipated that there were going to be uh, a lot of reports coming in in the context of the shots, the experimental shots. And to make a long story short, I wasn't wrong. So that's my background, and that's kind of how I got involved in this. It's been years, and I'm still doing exactly what I was doing from the beginning, and it hasn't slowed down at all. I'm actually right now at this exact moment in time meant to be sitting beside Senator Johnson during his hearing. He's having a live hearing now to talk just like this, just like I'm talking to you guys right now. But what's been going on, those plans got diverted unwillingly as well. <laughs> hmm. But yeah, I, I've just been nonstop. <laughs> yes, you have. And their loss is my gain, I suppose. <laughs> and that is a really good setup. And before we get into the latest numbers, talk to us about VAERS in general, the U.S. Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. There are a lot of misconceptions about this system. I've had people tell me we've given out millions of shots in this country and nobody has gotten hurt. And then I send them a VAERS link and they say, that's not credible. Anyone can fill out a report and say they turned into Godzilla after taking the shot. And there are a lot of trolls in there messing up the data. And 
I know this isn't true, but it is the perception out there for some people. So talk to us about VAERS credibility and the process of making a VAERS report that lets us know this can be trusted. Well, here's the thing. VAERS, yeah, it's the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System of the United States. It's about 30 years old. Its inception came about as a trade-off for the fact that pharmaceutical companies producing vaccines have complete immunity from liability. This is a government-owned database. doesn't get more serious than that. It's the FDA, CDC, HHS brainchild. And yes, it's a passive reporting system, which means that anyone can file a report. However, people should know that it takes about 30 minutes of your time to successfully file a temporary VAERS report. And it's not as simple as just taking a half an hour. It's an online system with multiple pages. And if you don't fill out each page on time, you get booted off, you gotta start again. So to successfully file a VAERS report takes a lot of effort. And then that gets a temporary ID and it's vetted. There is a very serious, rigorous process that someone has to go to in order to successfully get a report onto the front end database, which is the data that I analyze. People who are saying, the things that they've heard other people say is how I'll put it. They're not correct about VAERS. VAERS is called a pharmacovigilance tool, which means that it is designed and it was designed to detect safety signals in data that were not detected in pre-market testing. And I gotta tell ya, after looking at this for two years, it's functioning perfectly in doing that. <laughs> the number of safety signals being emitted from VAERS right now is, I'm no, not even now. After one month of these products being rolled out into United States, into American citizens, there were enough safety signals as defined by previous definitions to shut this thing down, to stop the rollout. And I'm referring to the fact that we had exceeded more than 50 reports of death in, in not even in temporal proximity, but they were in the context of the Pfizer, the Moderna and the Janssen shots. This is a, it's a fully functioning system right now. And there are over 1.4 million reports of adverse events in the context of just the COVID shots since they started the, the rollout. And this is in stark contrast to the last 30 years of data. Now listen to what I'm about to say. For all vaccines combined, and there are a lot of them on the schedule, for kids especially, for all vaccines combined for the last 30 years, the average total number of adverse event reports was about 39,000. So even if you're going to claim that a number of people were submitting false reports and getting them onto the front end system successfully, was that really done 1.4 million times and how many times above the background? I don't think so. Right. So, right. and that's not even the real point. The real point is since this data belongs to the FDA, the CDC, and HHS, why aren't they raising these issues, doing these analysis, doing causality assessments like they always have in the past? Where's the regulation? 
Right. It seems like instead of regulation, we're just getting a lot of damage control. Every weird article you see, it just gets less and less believable. I've even seen some people claiming, well, the reason that more vaccinated people are in the hospital now is because the unvaccinated are stressing them out. Just they don't know who in the grocery store is unvaccinated. They're getting so stressed. They're putting themselves in the hospital. They really are coming up with everything. And then sudden adult death syndrome. It's like, what the hell is that? It really makes you wonder what SIDS is. If SADS is this other cover story. Anyway, um, but yes, I just wanted to point out that all the reports are vetted before they get to you. That 1.4 million that you see, those are reports that have been filed and then looked at and then given to the front end. And it's also very serious to file a false report. This is the CDC. You can actually go to prison for filing false reports. Yep. So the reality with those two things and more is that VAERS data is grossly underreported. That would be the tendency, not overreported. First off, many regular folks don't know about VAERS. Then if they do, they have to tell their doctor about their problem. And doctors are kind of conditioned to not connect any problem with the shots so there are several layers a person with an adverse event must go through. And I'm told doctors are encouraged not to fill out too many VAERS reports or they get themselves on the radar. Mm -hmm. I don't know about that, but there have been studies done and estimates made. I guess, how do you typically square up what the system shows with what is probably the real world reality? Yeah, first of all, yeah, that's those are excellent points. Probably the worst thing about VAERS is this underreporting factor. And I can tell you with certainty that doctors are being incentivized not to file either by choice or because they're just unwilling to admit the reality that there's even a possibility of a connection, which is ludicrous because no doctor would deny the reality of an anaphylactic reaction, you know, if it happens subsequent to giving someone an injection, I mean, come on. So, you know, most people would say the way that you get around that problem is to just take the absolute counts, multiply them by an underreporting factor. So then the problem becomes, well, what's the underreporting factor? So I've calculated this based on Pfizer phase three clinical trial data from severe adverse events. And I came to a number of 31, which is not far off from another estimate done by Matthew Crawford and me and Steve Kirsch, which was 41 by a different method. And so, I mean, you know, you can absolutely integrate the underreporting factor into calculations, but I have to make a strong point here because the numbers the absolute counts are so high. You don't even have to consider the underreporting factor to see how atypical the number of reports are. And I'm not just talking total. I'm talking, if you look at standalone adverse events, oh, by the way, it's not just the absolute counts and bears that are staggeringly atypical. It's the range. In prior years, you might see, you know, thousands, like a few thousand different types of adverse event reports being filed. We call them MEDRA codes, preferred terms. And in the context of the COVID products, last time I counted, which was months ago, there were over 14,000 out of a total of 25 used, 25,000. So 
The number, the range of adverse event types that we're seeing in the context of these products is also staggeringly alarming. If you look at just about anything physiological that can go wrong in the human body, you will find it associated with these products. It's crazy. The damages being reported in temporal proximity to the injections is systemic. And it's affecting the heart, the liver, the lungs, the muscles, the skin, the eyes, everything you can think of. And so, I mean, you can pick anything you want. You can talk about myocarditis, which everybody knows about now because of this fiasco. You can look at cancer. You can look at anything you want. I mean, you name it. The numbers are off the charts when you look at the past 30 years of data. Right. It's nuts. And not to be too conspiratorial about the point you just made, but when I think about those people who are kind of really extreme saying this is a bioweapon, that everybody's going to die, you know, I don't think it's necessarily that everybody's going to die. But if I think about a person trying to engineer some weapon to injure a lot of people, that is what you'd want is something that has a wide range of injuries, a really abnormally wide range of potential injuries so that everything's in the gray. You don't really know. Is this associated? Is that associated? There's such a wide range. I mean, that's that's just really wild. And it's just a curious thing, I guess, that that ended up happening. But just to clarify what you said, to compensate for the underreporting the conservative estimate is that you'd multiply the numbers by a factor of 31. Is that right? That's right. Man. And then there are other factors affecting the data, like a major backlog of reports that have not been added to the system, as well as some data manipulation. I've heard you talk about certain codes being removed or going missing. How big a deal are those two things? Yeah, they're really big deals. But just to go back to what we were just talking about, you don't even have to go down the conspiratorial path. There's a link between all of these, these problems and it's the immune system itself. So in fact, if you can cause immune dysregulation or induce immune dysregulation somehow, you would see this kind of haywire. Anyway, we can come back to that, uh, sure. but I just wanted to throw that in there because it's a really important point, and I'm working on an article now that, you know, would shed some light on that too. So yeah, VAERS, first of all, there are two data sets that you can download uh, as part of the VAERS system. There's the domestic data, which are the reports filed by Americans within America, and there's the foreign data, which are reports filed by Americans and others directly to many, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, and they subsequently submit reports to VAERS. And you can imagine in that process that the development of a backlog, considering the numbers we're talking about, is massive. It's very real and big. So typically every Friday, the VAERS data is updated. And so both of these files, they're, they're separate files that you can download for analysis are updated as well. So about a month ago, me and my compatriots, who also analyzed VAERS data, noticed that the foreign data file size was really reduced. 
every week the file sizes both go up because there's more there are more reports more numbers of people so that particular week we noticed real big change less than half the size that it was let alone you know not having increased so first thought was well wow did they remove like more than half of the people so i looked inside and no that wasn't it still got you know this many and so i looked a little further and then noticed that there was a new disclaimer on the website saying that quote unquote, European regulators had ordered the CDC and the FDA to remove symptom text fields and all text fields that lend additional information pertaining to allergies or side effects or previous conditions. And it's from these fields that we get a lot of important information. It's like when the doctor scribbles down the notes about what happened, that's all that important information you can glean. You can diagnose using that information. It's sometimes it's so thorough. And if nothing else, you can get age data, gender data, you know, vax lot data, all this important information. So for over 100,000 people, that data was all disappeared. It's just vanished. And there wasn't even like a word in the place of the text that was missing, as in, you know, not applicable or missing or transferred. There's not even a note. It was just gone. And what that did to the, on the analytical side, to the data, just to give you a specific example, I'll bring up myocarditis again. I've discovered in, from VAERS data that there's a dose response associated with myocarditis with these shots. What that means is that if you, if you have someone who's had two doses, the number of reports being filed to VAERS following dose two in very young people is like five times as high as after dose one. So what I found in the foreign data was the same thing, except for dose three and a, across the, the entire spectrum of age groups. It wasn't only for young people. It was across all ages. So what happened when they scrubbed this data was that that entire safety signal being emitted very strongly from VAERS. I mean, it's very rare that you see something that clear from data. It was just gone. Hmm. So if you went to VAERS as a new, new investigator and you went to the foreign data to find a safety signal from myocarditis following dose three, you wouldn't see it. Interesting. And there's no reason. There's no reason given why they did that. And there's no, no information as to if that information was passed to another data set, such as the yellow card system, where perhaps maybe it did belong. But yeah, it's incredible. I mean, there are such obvious examples of the data being, for lack of a better word, manipulated. And on the subject of the backlog, I wrote a paper well over a year ago, it was probably a year and a half ago, that investigated the pharmacovigilance-ness of VAERS, whether or not it was actually functioning as a pharmacovigilance tool. And one of the things I looked at was this backlog. How many 
temporary IDs had been given to people who file reports who have never received a VAERS ID that ended up in the front end system. And it turns out that that number is very large back then. So now I can't even imagine how big it is. I've been saying off the top of my head about a million. So it's possible that there are like, I would bet money that there's at least a million reports floating around in the backlog, which means that again, without even considering an underreporting factor, you have a million reports that were probably filed like people took the effort, the medical professionals made the effort to do it, but they're in limbo. They're in temporary ID VAERS land. And not only that, but there are people who have filed reports, gotten to the front end system with their full on VAERS ID, whose reports have been disappeared. We have proof of this. Wow. I mean, that's incredible. And so you have all these factors that would go against the grain, like doctors not wanting to file them, people not knowing about it, then they have to be filled out exactly perfectly, and then they have to be verified, and then there's still some removed. So there's just so many things here that it's like any numbers we should take very seriously. And instead of mocking VAERS and dismissing those reports, people should ask themselves, if you don't think VAERS is credible in your mind, then what do we have, just nothing? And are you comfortable with nothing, because that's what you're left with. So this is the best we have, and we just got to kind of accept Beautiful. it. You nailed it, buddy. Exactly. <laughs> and just to nail that home, there literally is nothing. Like, I'm very good friends with many people who are actually clinical trial participants. One of them is Bree Dressen, and she took the AstraZeneca thing as part of the trial and got injured. And her whole life now... Her entire life has become dedicated to trying to get anyone, the Pfizer, I'm sorry, AstraZeneca people, the FDA or the CDC, to even acknowledge that she's been injured to maybe help her with medical bills that she's been incurring for years, that she's still incurring. The whole reason she participated in the trial was to be a good human being and to lend herself kind of as a, you know, as part of the experiment to create data points. And the fact that they've erased her and are not using any of her vital, vital data points to assess the true dangers or, the, or risks or whatever you want to call it, it's outrageous. And if people simply knew that, it's like, listen, you think this is safe and effective? You should really find out how they're running the clinical trials and how they're treating the people who actually did get injured in their trials. They're being ignored. Oh, man. It's just one thing after another that really makes you think about this stuff. And to get deeper into the numbers, so you say we have 1.4 million total reports. Let's say there's roughly a million in the backlog. I mean, that is a lot. And then you times that by a factor of 31. We're saying there might be 62 million adverse events of some kind just in America. I wouldn't be surprised. Wow. It's almost as if you can't not know someone now who hasn't been injured or doesn't know someone who hasn't been. 
it's not like what is that called six degrees of separation it's like one <laughs> yeah right well when i look at the deaths so for every year from 2011 to 2020, VAERS death reports have a range from 120 to 183. This is obviously the top bar graph on your website. But in 2021 slash 2022, it jumps to just shy of 40,000. So that is quite a lot. Then I looked up what percentage of the U.S. population got the first two doses, they say 70%. I don't know if you can trust that. I think that's also like a psychological manipulation. Hey, everybody's doing it. But if that's right, that's roughly 240 million people, they say. So if we times the 40,000 by 31, that's 1.24 million. Let's just say 1 million. That's, you know, we're saying like one out of 240 people who got Two doses could be dead. Yeah, but I want to make a point here. We have to lower that number because the underreporting factor for death is definitely lower than 31, in my opinion. Okay. Um, okay. Death is probably less underreported than even other severe adverse events. So I've been kind of going with 10, somewhere between 6 and 10 for an underreporting factor for death. But still, I mean... I mean, if you do that math, I wouldn't be surprised if it's that high. Crazy. Uh, I've done calculations, yeah, to calculate like the rate of severe adverse event occurrence. And it sounds in line with that. I mean, a lot of people are being injured. And you make a good point about the fact that, yes, a lot of them are in temporal proximity to the injections, but a lot of them aren't. A lot of them are happening months later people who are suffering reemergences of cancers for example sometimes that's not happening until well after say the second or third or fourth shots and <laughs> we have no idea like we have no predictability here like in terms of when something's going to happen if it's going to happen this is the most appalling thing to me because with all this wasted time and money and resources and energy, like propagating this insane dictatorship like message of there's only one solution, it's safe and effective, we could actually be doing really good bench work to figure out, like, okay, why did 15% or so of the population react really badly to this stuff? You know what I mean? Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions is if we have. Any information about demographics, uh, some people being hit harder than others or categories based on age or gender or race or anything? Yeah, this points to something that I, I did want to mention as to the mechanism of action of some of the shots. Because I, you know, first of all, I'd like to just clarify that we have no freaking idea what's in the needle you know, with the stuff being injected into every single arm, we have no idea because it's not being checked. It's definitely not being checked with the frequency that it should be being checked when you're talking about billions and billions of doses and vials. And we can talk about that too. But the point is the mechanism of action, geez, I lost my thought now. 
Damn it. Well, we're going to talk about demographics, I think, and how we can look at who's being injured and why some oh, yeah, people right. are and Thanks. some aren't. Right. Sorry, I'm my old age. I, <laughs> I forget stuff. All good. Yeah, so I think what's happening here, as I mentioned before, like the node of damage is definitely immune dysregulation. And I think what we're seeing, among other things, you know, like spike-induced damage is something called immunological senescence. When we age, we, you know, there are a number of factors that are responsible for things getting older. But one of the things that happens is a probably combination of result and because of is that our immune system also ages. This doesn't always have to be linked to chronological age. If you have a really shitty diet and say you have a genetic predisposition to being obese, then you're probably much older immunologically than a really healthy 40-year-old, just as an example. So this aging process of the immune system is really relevant here. You can actually get something called clonal exhaustion, whereby your T cells and or B cells, you know, they activate and proliferate to such an extent that they can't do it anymore. This is what happens when you naturally age. So I think something in these shots might be causing premature immunological aging, which would explain why we're seeing latent viruses coming back to life and cancer reemergences, et cetera. It's interesting also because we do see much higher death rates in older people. So it's almost like, I think senescence is definitely a factor here. That's why it takes down the old people first, and then it takes maybe a little longer or a few more shots, not in all cases, but in some cases to take out the infirm or people with autoimmune conditions or cancers or, you know, some pre-existing condition. And then who knows, maybe a perfectly healthy person can be taken down eventually. I don't know. I mean, it comes back down to the first thing I said, which was we have no freaking idea what's being injected into people on an individual level. We really don't. Right, right. That's not speculation. It's fact. It is. And great points. A lot of that is really important information. You mentioned the cancer thing. That is something I've heard several cancer specialists talking about that they're like, hey, there's a lot of people coming in and these cancers are fast acting. They're way different than, uh, you know, the typical progression of a cancer that we've been looking at our whole careers. Someone ought to look at this and the possible connection. And Psychologically, that's another factor. How many people are even connecting that? Because people are conditioned to think, well, some people, it's a roll of the dice. You just get cancer. Or if you've had cancer, sometimes it's a roll of the dice. It just comes back. It can't be related to the shot I got six months ago. And so that's another thing. But also with deaths, people have all sorts of opinions about that new film, Died Suddenly. But in it, they talk about coroners who are pulling these white strands from people's veins and arteries, not technically a blood clot because it's a foreign thing that's causing the blockage of blood flow. But the coroners are saying, 
These sudden deaths by stroke or heart attack, they're not getting autopsies. Nobody is seeing this stuff until they go to prepare the body for a funeral. And just like so many people were counted as killed by COVID because a PCR test popped positive, despite whatever reason they were really in the hospital for, the opposite is happening here. And a heart attack is just a heart attack. No official association, but clearly something new is happening to these people. Yep. You nailed it again. You don't need me. (laughs) (laughs) Man, it's scary. It's more than scary. It's incredible. It's it's inexplicable to me at this point, and I really think about this a lot. How it could be possible that a, and the answer is in the words I'm saying now, for a thinking medical doctor not to do a differential diagnosis, which would include naturally anything new that that person might have been injected with recently. So the key word there is thinking. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think I've heard you say in previous interviews that around 80% of the adverse events are within a certain time window of 48 or 36 hours or something like that which is great to be able to see that close of a link. But then we do have this other range. I guess it's really hard to put a number on it because if these cancers are associated, if these heart attacks and stuff that are happening months and months later are associated, I guess it really is hard to put a number on it. But the the best guess is 80%. I don't know if it's that high and it depends what you're talking about. But like you're talking about the temporal proximity from injection to onset of symptom, right? Correct. Yeah, so it's between closer to 50 to 60% in most of the standalone adverse events. In anaphylaxis, it's like, you know, 90 something, which is good. It's like an internal control for the assessment of the data in this way. So, but yeah, it's, it's it's way higher than, than I would consider something outside of the realm of of at least something that needs to be investigated for a causal effect. I mean, these are the kinds of safety signals that you literally look for in pharmacovigilance databases to do causality assessments. Like there's this thing called the Bradford Hill criteria, which it's independent from COVID. There are things that have existed outside of COVID. <laughs> and this is a way to determine whether or not you can provide evidence of a causal effect in epidemiological data. So one of these that's very important is temporality. So did something come before something, first of all, because in order to have a causal relationship, you have to have one thing preceding the next. And the shorter the time frame between those things, the more likely a causal effect is present. So <laughs> these are the things that the WHO, for example, assess in pharmacovigilance data. They even have their own, they have a form. They have their own assessment criteria. And you only have to satisfy five out of 10 of the Bradford Hill criteria in order to get a very likely prognosis. So (laughs) I've actually proven 10 of the 10 points, the criteria Mm. using VAERS data and other pharmacovigilance databases and case studies and peer-reviewed literature. So 
<laughs> it's just one of those things. It's like, why aren't you doing this again? Why aren't you looking, you know, at <laughs> cause effect relationships? Why aren't you looking at the temporal aspects? Why aren't you looking at specificity? Why aren't you looking at plausibility? Why aren't you looking at, it just goes on and on. If the regulators and the the watchdogs, as Peter McCullough always calls them, were doing their jobs, this would have been shut down a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like they're too far in now. And, and it's like, okay, I know that I'm drowning, so I might as well drown loudly and annoyingly. <laughs> oh, man. And so if we can say that these shots are just like a wrecking ball to the general immune system. And so if you get one, you did some damage. If you get two, that damage is amplified. Three, even more so. Well, on your website, you have the total number in each category for the original recipe shots and then a bracketed (laughs) number for the updated shots that they made later. Is there anything to be said about the difference in risk profile between the two? Well, (laughs) it's a good thing you bring up here. So for those of you who don't know, the injection rate of the (laughs) so-called bivalent shots, it looks pretty good. Either that or they're way more dangerous than the original chicken recipe. Just so that people know, the bivalent refers to the original Wuhan strain, which is long since extinct, and either the Omicron B4 or 5 spike, which is also long since extinct. So they're using proteins that have no relevance anymore. But here's the thing. The annoying part about making any assessment using VAERS data in the context of these bivalent products is that they're designed to be injected into people as a third or fourth or fifth dose. They're calling that a booster. So if someone files a VAERS report, like say they got myocarditis diagnosis following this bivalent crap, but they've already had three shots of the other stuff, we cannot attribute the myocarditis to the bivalent shot because the damage could have really been done by the other three shots. So it's really hard to say like anything specifically, if anything is specifically attributed to the bivalent shots, I would say that it is, but there's no way to determine that using the VAERS data. But also you guys should know that the rate of reporting of the bivalent shots is really high. We're over 10,000, if I'm remembering correctly. I'm just going on to my website. Yeah, there's only over 10,000 reports since they started coming in. I think it was November 18th, so just about a month ago. No, that was when... Anyway, it's been about a month, I guess, a little over a month. So, and, you know, it's just like it was when the reports started rolling in for the first version of the shots in VAERS exponential growth curve, you know, every week, the numbers going up. But the point I'm trying to make here is that the numbers are going up more steeply, it appears. So unfortunately, because of the fact that everything is a big bloody mess, probably by design, we can't really say again that things are attributed specifically to 
this bivalent thing, which is the stupidest thing I ever heard of in my whole life, by the way. I mean, it's stupider <laughs> than the original shot idea. Well, you know, I'm also hearing people talking about the flu-ster, that they're going to combine the yearly flu shot with the boosters. I don't know if that's to market or anything like that, but I'm at least hearing the conversation on mainstream media talking head channels that we could be getting a, a flu-ster. So you're going to get a double dose every year to guard you against the things that come around again. Yeah, I can guarantee you they're not going to do that. So oh, if, okay. <laughs> if you're listening and you and you care about what I'm saying, you can trust me on that. It ain't going to protect you from anything. And it seems that the harms being reported in association with these products far, far, far outweigh any benefit you might receive anyway. You can take that to the bank. Yes, I agree not with that. Not that we'll have banks for very much longer, but... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the digital currency wallet that you might have. Um, so what what about the categories that involve the reproductive system? I've heard you talk about the spike proteins accumulating in the ovaries and testicles and that we had a study almost 10 years ago that told us this would happen. That's something I pulled off one of your slides that was interesting. But what can we say about issues relating to the sex organs and fertility? Well, we can say a lot. First thing I'd like to say is that we were told from the very beginning by everyone, the policymakers, the officials, the three-letter agencies, the legacy media, that, you know, whatever was injected was going to stay at the injection site and perhaps go to the local draining lymph node and, you know, it would degrade quickly and voila, you have immunity and no more no more product in your body. That was a lie. It wasn't just false. It was a lie because they had the data that was later FOIA requested and revealed to the public, mostly by me screaming about it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Byron Bridal, a Canadian viral immunologist, was the original FOIA requester of this Japanese study. He's one of my heroes. He's great. Also, you know, Aaron Siri's team demanded Pfizer data be requested by FOIA. So what this data revealed is that not only do the lipid nanoparticles, which are the fat carrier molecules of the modified mRNA, not stay at the injection site, but they absolutely biodistribute and bioaccumulate. And one of the organs that they bioaccumulate into the highest levels are the ovaries. Do we know the implications of this? No. Do we know the implications of the delivery of the payload of the modified mRNA and subsequent translation to massive amounts of spike protein in the ovaries? No. Do we know the effects of that happening in the adrenals? No. Spleen? No. Liver? No. So just imagine, if you will, that perhaps it could cause a problem. How would those problems manifest physiologically? Well, I could imagine a few ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I see them all the time in bears. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the fertility issue is, it's a very pending and scary one because of what I just said. We know a lot more because of some articles that have been published in the peer-reviewed literature now about what's going on with the spike protein. One of the things that we found out was that the mRNA can reverse transcribe to DNA 
using a retrotransposon or a reverse transcriptase called line one. And the reason that's concerning beyond the obvious reason is because line one is implicated in embryogenesis. So during the embryogenetic phases, this line one has to be at specific expression levels. And if they're off during any one of those stages, then you can have a embryogenetic halt, which means, you know, termination of embryogenesis. So in fact, line one expression levels do vary in the context of the spike protein. So it begs the necessary question, are the reports of stillbirths and spontaneous, well, spontaneous abortions and miscarriages, do these have anything to do with, you know, the injections? Hmm. It's just a, like a really, you know, point A to point B question. And it should have been answered very clearly before this crap went into any arms. And what's even scarier is that, you know, it's being promoted as safe for pregnant women. And there's absolutely zero, 0.00 data to support that claim. But in fact, there is a lot of data to support the fact that it's probably not safe to do so. But ultimately, what we really need is long-term safety data, which we don't have. And we didn't have at the time that these people were promoting that these products were safe for pregnant women. We never do that. Pregnant women and even lactating women are always, and women of childbearing age, are always on exclusion criteria lists in clinical trials. Mm -hmm. Always. And these products were no exception. So how is it possible that within six months, instead of 15 years of testing, we can now say to a pregnant woman, yeah, yeah, they're fine. It's not going to affect your fetus. It's criminal lies because there's no person on planet Earth that can say that definitively because they can't back it up with data. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, how many times have we heard just on like every pharmaceutical ever, even pretty simple stuff? Do not take if you're pregnant or plan on becoming pregnant. Like that's a phrase I've heard every pharmaceutical commercial. Yeah, like, like don't eat lettuce if you're pregnant, but get injected with experimental gene you know, therapy. It's like, what the hell happened? Right. What happened? It is crazy. And spontaneous abortions and miscarriages obviously are very sad. But I guess when it comes to fertility of people who aren't even thinking about having a kid soon, it's going to be even harder to know. I mean, how is anyone going to know about the fertility of men in their early 20s who aren't thinking about that? Yeah, exactly. And and on that point, yeah, you're right. It's not just women. A paper was published in Andrology that showed that the Pfizer product was causing men to have lower sperm counts and motility issues. And, you know, put that into perspective. I mean, Jesus, there's so many people who are having <laughs> fertility issues anyway. I mean, I know so many people who do IVF because they're already having problems conceiving. You know what I mean? So it's like, mm -hmm. do you really want to throw that gasoline on that fire? Even potentially. So, you know, the fact checkers were saying that 
no, no, it's just temporary. Don't worry about it. Even the, I think the authors of the paper said that it was temporary, but it's like, do you really want to play that game? Right. I right. would want, especially if I wanted to have kids, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So obviously you are focused on the data. It is why you're here. I appreciate that about you, but it's like, what do we do going forward? If we can't get the regulatory agencies to trigger a recall, obviously a lot of people have decided if they are or aren't going to continue on with this regiment of boosters, but it's like, what, what is your best hope for getting out of this mess? Is it just going to be a time thing or is there something that you actually are, are putting your, your faith behind anything you're placing your bet on that can help us get out of this? Well, you know, it is going to be time because it's numbers. It's just a numbers game now. Like there are people who are starting to listen to their hearts now. The ones who I said, you know, everybody knows something's wrong. More and more people are starting to act on their suspicions and that might mean they're just talking to their neighbor or asking questions or just, you know, yeah, speaking out a little bit more in those ways. Or it could mean, you know, uh, someone becoming far more active in the community to disseminate information about the possible dangers. So I think it's just a numbers game. Everyone's tired of this crap. Nobody likes being told what to do in the first place. So when they come around, they're going to come around real soon and try and pull all this nonsense again under the guise of climate change. You wait for it. It's coming. You know, I don't think people are going to be, I hope that people aren't going to be as receptive to being gagged, injected, told to shut up and told to stay in their homes. It's so crazy when I say it like that, but that's precisely what happened. Like, you would never, ever, ever think that the entire population of humans would ever do those four things, but a lot of people did. It's crazy. It's like, we've forgotten the fact that we're, we're autonomous beings. There are no authorities. I mean, some people's authority, you know, to them are God or mother nature or what have you, but like, Ultimately, we don't have, no human has authority over you, period. Not even policemen. Nobody does. There's a big difference between legal and lawful. People need to like understand what that means. I mean, it's not legal to do any of this shit. It's really not. You, you can't force someone to take an injection to keep their job so they can feed their kids. It's crazy. I'm going on a bit of a rant now. I like it. I wasn't going to interrupt. Yeah, well, that's for the way out. I mean, it's it's literally just about staying the course, man. The only difference between success and failure is persistence. That's just my motto. It always has been. So, and try not to lose your shit along the way. I mean, if you're vaccine injured, it's a lot harder not to lose your shit. But there are communities forming mainly by the vaccine injured for the vaccine injured to help. And these are communities of people that do include medical professionals who can, you know, not only help with, with the injuries, but perhaps clearing the spike out as well. 
React 19 is a really good one, just to give Bree a, a little shout out there. So there's there's a lot of hope. I still believe in the good of people. I think that it's a mistake to think that these globalist morons have as much power as we're giving them. They have no power. The only power that they have is the power that we're giving them. So all we have to do is take it back. Literally, that's the answer. It's just a bunch of people, like a handful of people who have an excess of, of money. So it's meaningless if you look at what's meaningful in life. Unfortunately, they don't seem to value life very much by their own words. So yeah, just reclaim. Everybody needs to just reclaim themselves and just be as human as possible because I also think, I firmly believe that in the mess of the last two years, there was a real attempt to dehumanize humans, to take the human, yes, okay, to take the human out of humanity, this isolation and, you know, shut up, put your mask on and you can't see your family for Christmas. You can't see your grandma when she's dying. You can't bury her when she's dead, etc. So be more human. That's always a good solution. Be kind. Be open-minded with everyone. Like, there's nothing that the dividers love more than dividing people. So, you know as hard as your instinct might be to fight with someone about anything related to the subject matter, try not to do that. Try to bridge gaps as much as you can. Because ultimately it's us, you know, together. <laughs> uh, not to sound corny, but the only way we're going to get through this is together. So, Well said. And I heard you in a previous interview say that you wholeheartedly believe this plan of the globalists is going to fail because they didn't factor in the human spirit. And I agree. That's a sentiment a lot of our guests have brought up and it's what we have to go on at this point. And also in a previous interview, I heard you say that it's either only these shots causing these problems or these shots plus something else. And I'm just curious what else would be worth considering as a factor, maybe something that we could potentially avoid. You mean in causing damages? Yes. Other shots, pre-existing condition of a certain kind. I wouldn't even rule out EMF radiation. I'm not going there today, but <laughs> we have definitive evidence in peer-reviewed journals that certain kinds of EMF radiation can induce cancer. So. We don't know the combined effects of um, of certain things. We haven't ruled out the counterindications. So yeah, there's no real way to know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's anyone's guess at this point, but yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought you might say with the EMF, because obviously if we have pre-existing conditions, you can't really do much about that. It's pre-existing. But if you have family or friends who got the shot and you can keep their EMF environment a little more natural. Maybe that's 
a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing either way. Like you say, we have some data that shows it's a stressor on the body and the immune system and it's not good. So it would be a positive change in a person's life regardless. But if this is a one-two punch kind of situation, then let's uh, do something to dampen that second punch, I guess I would say. But before we run out of time, you mentioned one group, React 19. What about other organizations or, or groups that you think are important to propelling the medical freedom movement forward? Not so much people who have been injured, but the medical freedom movement in general. I know you go to a lot of conferences and you speak at events. What groups would you cite as like, hey, people, support these groups, know about these groups because they have the best chance at fighting the good fight to help you have your medical freedoms? The FLCCC, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, the World Council for Health, Solidarity in Science. Yeah, oh gosh, I'm forgetting so many, I'm sure. Mounties for Freedom, I think. Oof. Yeah, React 19, of course. I'm so sorry for the guys I'm forgetting. <laughs> It's late. All good. I would probably throw in Children's Health Defense. They're doing a lot of great work. Obviously, you oh, host a show there. I, I <laughs> the obvious one. <laughs> America's Frontline Doctors, they were a big group that were out there, but I'm hearing about some scandals in upper management, some embezzlement type stuff. I don't know if they're worth supporting financially anymore, but they are a big group fighting for medical freedom, or they were. Yeah, I, I'm sure they still are. Definitely. I haven't heard anything otherwise, so I'm sure they're still on the go. Yeah. So there are places out there to throw your support if you want to make sure we have medical freedom in the future. And I suppose that is about all the time we have. I really, really appreciate your dedication to tracking this stuff. It is a true service to humanity. Before I cut you loose, tell people about your website, your Substack, anything they might want to know about following up with you and keeping up on your reporting of the data as we get more and more. So if you want to see updated VAERS data and some papers that I've written on VAERS, like that pharmacovigilance paper I mentioned, and all of the interviews that I've done, there's a lot now, you can go to Jessica's Universe, which is my website. And I have two Substack newsletters. One is jessicar.substack.com, which is more uh, science-y stuff. And I have jessica5b3.substack.com, which is more about current events. It's all like COVID crap because, I mean, this is literally all I'm doing is like fighting against the the lie machine. <laughs> yeah. Man, as, as sick as I am, Talking about it, I still get to talk about other things as opposed to you, who's just every day doing interviews like this. So I really do appreciate it because it is what we need and it is basically an information war at its heart. And so we got to get the information out there. So you are a light in the darkness and I salute you, the certified safety signal seeking surfer. Keep fighting the good fight and take care. That's awesome. <laughs> this was a great interview. You you almost didn't need me, like I said. Ah, uh, thank you. Too kind. <laughs> All right. I can't see you, so I can't see if you're waving goodbye. So thanks a lot. And anytime you want to do a follow-up, I'm available.
Great news. All right, take care. Have a good one. Bye. And boom goes the dynamite once again, Dr. Jessica Rose doing the Lord's work. She's out there every day combing over this data. And I wanted to know now that we're pretty much exactly two years in what the fallout has been or at least what it is at this point. Where is that truth between safe and effective and instant death? Because to say it's an instant death sentence is not really being honest, right? Don't get me wrong, I've never had a nice word to say about the shot, not one. And personal anecdotes are only worth so much, but of the 50 closest people in my life, at least 40 of them have gotten the first two. And so far, nobody has had anything serious happen to them. I know a lot of people can't say the same, but my inner circle has suffered no problems thus far. And I am very thankful for that because they decided to take an untested and very risky technology into their bodies on blind faith. With these kind of conversations we have in the conspiracy, I just don't like the hyperbole. And you get a lot of it because it seems disingenuous to call out the perpetrators as liars and then over-exaggerate the situation the other way. But I'll also be the first to say that this story is not over yet. We don't know what's going on inside the bodies of our loved ones. Two years is a long time for a spike protein factory to be going off inside your body. But if you don't plan on having any more kids or, like, running ever, then I think you're going to be all right. And yes, I kid, but strenuous activity from athletes to stage musicians seems to be one of those things that triggers all the bad stuff. So I know that the jab and Agenda 2030 get mentioned a lot. It is what it is, but you can't say we've done a full deconstruction of the adverse events and deaths data. Maybe ever, but certainly not lately. So it's something we have to spend at least an episode on. I mentioned RSV in this one and the hospitals filling up with all these kids. I think it was probably in the second hour, but regardless, the latest news apparently is kids just getting strep throat is enough now to be putting them in the hospital. Again, it just seems like general immunity failure, really. That covers all the bases, but I saw a few headlines about strep and flu and even scarlet fever now. And yes, I know that if you step outside of the virus paradigm, these are just collections of symptoms that have been named X, Y, or Z. But I'm only saying that things kids used to just deal with are now killing them, and that's some sad shit. With the strep thing, I've also read that another contributing factor is this nasal flu vaccine that they're giving to kids. But who really knows? Just leave Big Pharma alone as best you can, right? I also did watch that Senator Ron Johnson hearing that Jessica was supposed to be at. It had all the heavy hitters there, and damn, just really impressive stuff. Almost could make a person believe that something might actually be done about this. And have you guys also heard about the odd thread regarding Israel and the EU declaring that they can't actually find any signed agreement with Pfizer regarding all this? It's unclear to me if they're referring to legal protections or what, but it's sort of comical to start seeing this level of cover your ass coming out, isn't it? It's like losing the data from the moon landing. Oh, we just can't find it. Like with a project this big, 
if intentions were pure, you'd think all the ducks would be in a row, but now suddenly, hey, did uh, we even sign a document with Pfizer? I don't know. <laughs> and the reality is that people are dead and injured severely. It's clearly very serious, but that is such a lame and pathetic attempt to pass the buck that you gotta roll your eyes, at least. Then we got these silly stories like the unvaxxed are more likely to get in car accidents. Studies show. Why? Because the unvaxxed are actually out living their lives, not too scared to go out or sick in bed with COVID for the fifth time? Is that why? But I needed to hear from someone like Jessica so I could mentally prepare myself for what I might see in my own life. I hope you guys thought about it the same way because that is the spirit in which today's show was intended. Also, that website I mentioned that I got really from Dr. Malone is howbadismybatch.com, not howbadismylot. But if you can wrangle the lot number from your parents or spouses or whoever you care about, you can look that up pretty easily and try to get a handle on how at risk they might be. Of course, as Jessica repeatedly said, we just can't really know. This was rolled out in such a haphazard, non-standardized way that we can't just trace lot numbers and get a true picture because there are many other factors. There were so many untrained people putting shots in arms and drive throughs and baseball stadiums and pop-up tents. And we don't know if the needles were clean or if the vials were handled properly or diluted properly or if the needle was exasperated or if it was even injected into a vein or a muscle or any fucking place because people are so stupid and fail to realize that an injection is a pretty serious matter. But I could go off on this all day, and you just got two hours of shot talk, so I won't make you sit through any more, except to say that in the Plus Show, the things that first-hour listeners missed included the question of if anyone at the top truly knows the fallout. I asked Dr. Rose if she thinks bioweapon is too strong of a term. Spoiler alert, she doesn't. We talked about mental effects and memory loss associated with the shots, got some information on the reporting systems and processes of other countries and what the data shows around the world, detoxing and mitigating risk if you've already been jabbed, medicinal foods that should be part of everyone's diet, shot risk profiles by brand and mRNA versus the other shots that were available. We talked about if there's any real threshold that could trigger a recall at this point, or if it's just full steam ahead, and a lot of other stuff, including monkeypox and the monkeypox vaccine and the RSV thing, a lot of good stuff. As always, if you like this show, I hope that you will sign up for Plus. It gives you five extra hours every month, and seven bucks is a nice tip to show your appreciation of what's going on around here. And you get a seven-day free trial to kick it off. Help me help you. And in higher side news, Darren just texted me last night that we still have a small handful of spots left for the Magic on the Mountain event. Come hang out for an extended weekend with me and the Gramerica guys at a cabin near Mount Shasta. I certainly don't do things like this very often, and with the kid, I don't know when I'll do something like this again either. I get messages all the time from people who say smoking a joint with me is on their bucket list. And well, this is where it can happen not once, but all weekend long. Not to mention the speakers and presenters they have planned. 
I know we're going to do a panel and probably a Q&A. It's in February, so it's coming up quick. If you are interested, just go to contact at thecabin.com and click on Magic on the Mountain to find out more. Also, I just wanted to throw out a little apology to any Plus members who have had pending support tickets. If you can't access the show, there's a good chance you're not hearing this now, but sometimes there is really a glitch that would affect a person's account, but 90% of the time it's, can you tell me my password again? Or I can log into the website fine, but something is wrong with this app or that app. Or will you cancel for me? And these are all things that really are the responsibility of the user. If you lose your password, click the forgot password link. If you want to cancel, log in and click cancel. As you would with Netflix or Hulu or literally any other subscription service. But it's these types of little things, along with a ton of people who fill out support tickets to try to get a message to me or request a guest, that just gums up the whole system. And we can't get to the people who have a legitimate issue fast enough, but we recently added a new support person to help get through all that stuff. So help is on the way. And I always make it up. Nobody pays for time they don't have access for, or I just give them more time. It's no sweat to me. I have to make a living, but I am pretty liberal with making it right. So, sorry for the delays, but they really should all be worked through by tomorrow. And if we didn't have so much abuse of the customer service tech support system, we could be even better at it. But that's just the nature of these things, I guess. I'm also going to be dusting off the old Where Would We Be Without THC theme for the new year. And I'm having a few other versions made, and I'm accepting cover versions from anyone who wants to submit one. All I ask is that the recording quality is professional and that we keep the lyrics the same. And besides that, feel free to do it in your own style, and this way we can change up the beginning of the show so it's not always the same old thing. And using just the tail end of the song with the last line is pretty perfect when I have clips to put out. And I'm going to try to put out a lot more clips going forward. I had a nice template made up, and I think it's kind of a much more effective way of promoting the show than, say, paying for Facebook ads, which I did recently with very limited success. I got to try to do some things to make it grow. I added the seven-day free trial for Plus, but social media ads are just not the way. So I'm going to try shareable clips and doing things more guerrilla style and free with just really good assets. Not the biggest deal in the world, but I'm letting you know for some reason. <laughs> and as for the meetup calendar, it looks like all the meetups for December have been spent. The last one of them was yesterday. January has a ton, but we will get to those later. For now, I guess just enjoy the holidays, and I'll see you with two more shows before the year is done. Thanks for listening. Big thanks to Dr. Rose, and take care out there. I've done my part. Your move, shot supporters, jab agenda pushers, and mRNA evangelists. Your fucking move. Get through the gate downtown, walking fast, security pass, and I'm homebound. But I got flagged, beaten and gagged, and my hands bowed. Now I'm screwed. 
I'm so screwed But I still wonder If I could stall Get past these guys Those documents Would expose the lies Cause I know they've got a thousand files If I could just break through Tonight Clean my precious memory. Now I'm screwed. I'm so screwed. But I still wonder if I could stall, get past these guys. Those documents would expose the lies. Cause I know they. Just break through tonight.